Hey, if you got a Bible, open it up to the book of John, Gospel of John, chapter 14. John chapter 14 is where we're going to be tonight. And we're going to look at the first 14 verses there in the Gospel of John with this idea of overcoming a troubled heart. Overcoming a troubled heart. Has anybody ever had a troubled heart? Anybody, anybody ever felt what that's like? Yeah, I'm not the only one who's, who's done that one before. I think that, that a troubled heart is one of those things that's a common thing to humanity. It's one of those things that, you know, it's like uh, what they say about motorcycle riders, that, that there's only two kinds of motorcycle riders. There's those who have been down and those who are going down, right? Like you're either, you're either in trouble, you've just come out of trouble, or you're about to go into trouble. That's just the way that it is this side of heaven. And, and if somebody told you differently, they sold you a bill of goods. They sold you a false gospel that is not the reality. Uh, Jesus, you know, doesn't take you into his family and then everything's sh sunshine, rainbows, and puppy dogs uh, the rest of your life. Uh, that is just not the truth. The, the reality is we're going to have trouble. That, that's just the way that it's, it's going to go. You know, sometimes things come into our lives. They knock the wind out of us. They make, the, the, make us lose heart. And, and maybe for you, that, that's even something that you're described right now. That's something that you're experiencing even in this moment. That you don't have to look too far back in the rearview mirror to see a time of trouble. You're even living it in this very moment. We can have it happen for various reasons. Maybe the circumstances of life are just difficult. It's just not going the way you thought it was going to go. It's not coming together the way that you hoped it would. The stuff that you thought was going to happen just didn't. And it seems like it's going from bad to worse. Or maybe someone in your life just really wants to make your life a wreck. For no, no observable reason, no, no uh, logical reason that you can put together. They just want to come against you. They just want to attack you. They just want to make your life miserable. And so you're in the middle of a trial. Or, or maybe, maybe even it's something, it's not any of those things. Sometimes the reason that we're in the middle of difficulty, hardship, and trial is because of the consequence of our own sin. You know, like David expressed in Psalm 51 verse 3 that my sin is always before me and there's this heaviness of heart because of the hand of God and conviction upon you. Whatever reason it is, whatever reason that you find yourself in a time of heartache, in a time of troubled heart, Jesus has some things to say to us in John chapter 14 about overcoming this troubled heart. And so I want to walk through that with you together tonight. Our big idea as we look at this section together today is this. Your heart is not the victim of circumstance. Your heart is not the victim of circumstance. Now, that is the opposite of the message that the world is preaching to you. We live in an era where uh, the, the social norm is that everybody's a victim for all sorts of reasons. That, that everyone has a reason to claim victim mentality and to say, it's not my fault, it's their fault. But the truth of the matter is, the reality is, your heart is not the victim of circumstance. And if you can get that thought, then you can see Jesus leading you through this troubled heart. So let's read John 14, verses 1 through 14. We're going to read all the verses together. Uh, it's going to take a couple of minutes. Uh, um, and so we'll, we'll read through all of it, and then we'll go back through and break it down, all right? John 14, 1 says this. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? 
Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention to your word tonight, we ask for your Holy Spirit's presence. God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive. God, that we would draw near to you and that in doing so, in that obedient act of faith to draw near to you, that you would draw near to us, as your word tells us in James. God, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds tonight as we look into your word. So, God, speak to us. We want to hear from you. God, convict us. We want to be closer to you. And, Lord, lead us that we might follow you and glorify you with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight, together tonight, we're going to look at John 14, verses 1 through 14, in five areas of refocus. That's what we're going to pay attention to and focus on tonight in these, these 14 verses together today. Uh, and, and these areas of refocus have to do with overcoming a troubled heart. Uh, the first one's in verse 1, and that's have faith in Jesus. And then secondly, verses 2 through 3 have eternity in Jesus. And then 4 through 6 have hope in Jesus. Verses 7 through 11 have knowledge in Jesus, and then 12 through 14 have busyness in Jesus. That, that is busyness. That isn't a typo. It's not, it's not like a word from, oh yeah, the word from the Lord. I should start a business. That's, that's not what that is. It's busy, it is busyness. That's, that is what that is. Now, in John chapter 13, which is right before where we find ourselves here in John 14, the, the context is set for us where Jesus is meeting together with his disciples. They're having this last supper, this last dinner with Jesus, and, and he's spending time with them, and he's leading them through this, uh, this last supper. He's walking their feet and he's, he's got some, uh, some things to say to them. And here at this, this, this uh, uh, last supper, this time of Passover dinner, Jesus drops three massive bombs on the disciples. He's got three huge things that he says to them. He tells, he tells them about, number one, Judas's disloyalty, that, that someone's going to betray him. He tells them about his departure, I got to go and, and I'm leaving guys. And then he also talks about Peter's denial and uh, in this time, right before we get into chapter 14, it's like, you know, just imagine, you know, if you're a good Jewish kid, then you've spent your whole life having Passover dinner with your family. And it's just a time of celebration, a lot like the way that we would celebrate maybe Thanksgiving or Christmas. And we just have all these traditions centered around it in this time of celebrating and enjoying one another. And here they are, they're celebrating Passover and they're celebrating Passover with Jesus. Jesus. 
How cool is that? And they're together with Jesus. And then Jesus puts a big bummer on the party and is like, hey, guys, some bad stuff's going to happen. And I'm sure they're like, Jesus, what's up, man? Like, why, why you got to say negative stuff? Just be positive, bro. You know, and they're, they're kind of like, what's up? Like, why are you doing this? Well, what is happening? And I'm sure that in the middle of all of this, their whole celebration or their whole dinner went from celebration to troubled and everything's not going as they'd hoped. And Jesus says something really significant really significant to us there in, 14, in four, chapter 14, verse 1, he says this, let not your heart be troubled. See that very first word, let? I think that word is an extremely significant, extremely important word for us to pay attention to. What this infers to us is that, is that uh, it's inferring that he is about to, what he's about to tell them is completely under their control that there are some things that they can actually do with this, that, that they're not the victim of circumstance, but in fact, even though circumstances come into their lives that they're not in control of, and there's stuff that happens that they didn't plan for, they still have some control of some things. You see, the, the thing is, is that when you are faced with what you cannot control, it is vital that you do what you can control. It's vital that you do what you can control. You're not going to be able to control everything. There's a whole bunch of things that you, can, you can't control. Other people's reactions. You can't control the government. You can't control the weather. You can't control uh, so, someone else's mentality or their, uh, the, the things that they do. But you can control yourself. Now, did, did anybody wake up today thinking, hey, you know what? I got a plan for my life. I'm going to ruin it. I'm going to wreck it today. You know, like no, nobody woke up with that idea in their mind. Like, I know, I know what the good thing for me to do is. I'm just going to wreck my life. No, nobody wakes up thinking that. No, nobody has the intention to destroy their life. You know, what I do in my life is I orchestrate my life for my comfort. <laughs> That's, I'm always on my mind. Uh, I, I love me uh, a lot. I love me and I want you to love me. Um, and so it's, you know, it's one of those, that's just, that's just the way I'm always thinking. You know, I'm, I'm always thinking about when I'm hungry or what I want to buy or the places I want to go and the stuff I want to do. I'm perpetually on my mind. And the reality is that pain is not a part of my plan. I don't plan for pain in my life. I plan for comfort in my life. And the reason I don't plan for pain is because I don't like it because I can't control it. And yet God brings things that are difficult into our lives for the purpose of doing something within us that can be done no other way. You see, the heart of the matter is, it's a matter of the heart. That's the reality. And when you lose heart, you get into big trouble because when you lose heart, it opens the door to laziness, to cowardice, and sin. And so Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't lose heart. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know I've said some things that you don't want to hear, but don't lose heart. In Proverbs 24, uh, excuse me, 4.23, it says this, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Everything in your life flows out of this one place, your heart. And so Jesus calls them to refocus their attention and us as well off of the problems and onto some other things. Because a troubled life does not automatically mean a troubled heart. You can have a troubling life. You can go through difficult things, but you don't have to have a troubled heart in the middle of those things. And so Jesus is going to address that with us. So let's look at refocus number one in verse one, have faith in Jesus. Jesus begins with calling them to believing 
uh, faith in him. Look there at verse one again. It says, let not your heart be troubled. Now from here in the rest of the chapter, he's gonna give us these five things. And in fact, chapter 14 has six things, but the last half of the chapter is the, the sixth thing. We're not gonna be able to get into that tonight. We're only gonna look at five. But, but here are these five things about not letting your heart be troubled. How? How do I do that? Well, Jesus tells us. Number one, you believe in God, believe also in me. What he says is, don't look at your issue, look up to me. It's as if their eyes have dropped. They've received hard, uh, a hard word. They've received difficult information and, and their countenance falls and their face drops. And it's as if Jesus reaches down and grabs their chin and tips their face up until their eyes meet his. And he says, look to me. The same way you believe in God, Believe in me, Jesus says. This is clearly a claim to deity. Jesus is saying, I am God and I have the capacity to take care of this. When troubling times come, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus will bring stability to your heart. It'll bring stability to your heart. Anxiety and worry and fear, things that we all experience. It's been said that it's like a rocking chair. It gives you a whole lot of motion, but you don't really get anywhere. Right? That's, that's what those do. You just, you're, you're worked up, you're moving, there's a lot of things happening, but you're not going anywhere. You see, this call to faith that Jesus gives us is in the understanding that he, in fact, is God. And that if you want to know who God is, you want to know what God's like, you want to know what God thinks, you want to know how God talks, you look at Jesus. He's, he's God in flesh. He's not like God. He's not a sub-God. He's not an emanation of God. He is God. And because he's God, he shows us who the Lord is. When trouble comes into your life, your focus naturally goes to the problem. It's like, I don't know if you like, I like action movies. Maybe you do too. I don't know. But I like action movies. And in action movies, you know, there's, uh, there's usually some sort of, of fight scene that's going on where the good guy and the bad guy are battling over something. And then what turns the tide, what turns the tables is when a, a weapon is entered into the scene. And it's all a struggle over who's going to get to the weapon in order to get the, the dominant position. That, that's kind of where, where all the focus goes. And so too it is in our lives. When trouble, when difficulty, when hardship, when anxiety comes, all the focus goes right to that. All the focus goes right to the hardship. It turns into the only thing that you can see. And what happens is, your entire life gets painted into the picture of this trouble. It, everything is gloomy. Everything is downcast. Everything is terrible. It's like, you know, I got a raise at work. Oh gosh, I got a raise. It's so terrible. You know, my, my wife, you know, said she loved me. Oh gosh, I just don't know why she said she loved me today. You know, everything in your life is seen under the idea of the problem. It defines your entire life. And even the blessings of your life are seen under the shadow of gloom. And so Jesus begins by calling us to lift our eyes up. This is because faith that is rightly placed is only placed in Jesus. A faith that is rightly placed is only placed in Jesus. This is not a faith in somebody, right? Jesus is not calling us to faith in someone that, that, that maybe you're, you're thinking, well, if I just had a, a girlfriend, then, then things would get better. Or if I just got married, then all my problems would be fixed. Anyone who's married is like, what are you, you don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> and then the married people are like, well, if I just had kids, then it would solve my problems. Like, did you know that when you have children, you invite terrorists to live into your home? Did you know that? 
That's what you get. You get terror. So it's, that is not going to fix your problems. That's going to multiply your problems, right? And so we think that maybe someone's going to say, I'm going to have my faith in someone saving me. No. It's not faith in faith, you know, just for the idea of, of faith's sake. It's not faith in the circumstance changing. That's not faith. Faith isn't, well, one day it's going to get better. What if it never does? What if this is how it is for the rest of your life and it costs you your life? What if? Is God bad somehow? Did God de get dethroned somehow? Did God somehow lose his goodness? Of course not. Of course not. It's not faith in that. It's not faith in yourself, your self-will, your self-esteem, your ability to pick yourself up. It's, it's not Nike theology. Just do it. You know, that, that's not what we're talking about here. This is faith in Jesus because faith that's rightly placed is only placed in Jesus. Now, number two, refocus number two is to have eternity in Jesus. This is verses two through three. Look at verse two. He says this, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Here's the thing. Heaven is a real place. And being in Christ guarantees that you're really going to spend eternity there. Sometimes we just need that perspective shift. Sometimes we just need to not look up just to Jesus, but to look up to the eternal reality that this is not all there is. That there are actually worse things than death and dishonoring God's at the top of that list. That, that, that there is something beyond the grave and that eternity is very real. It's not, it's not a, a fairy tale idea. It's not something that's out there in the future of maybe, but it's a certain reality. When troubling times come, an eternal focus brings perspective to your heart. You see, this life is temporary. It's like the grass, Psalm 103, verse 15. It's here today, gone tomorrow. That's how God describes our lives. That our lives are like a blip on the scale of eternity. And we place so much effort into right here, right now, and trying to make this better, and trying to make this uh, more, and trying to grow this, and trying to say, well, I'm going to work on getting my pile bigger than the next guy's pile, because everything's about right here, right now. And, and that's the measure of life. And when we do that, we pour our lives into shallow, empty nonsense instead of the reality of eternity. Because heaven is, is very real, and it is something that we are very real, really going to be experiencing. You see, heaven fills your heart with hope. It fills your heart with awe. It fills your heart with wonder and anticipation of what the future could hold. What's it going to be like? What, what, what will it be like to see Jesus? What will it be like to be reunited with those friends and family members? What will it be like to get to walk along uh, the sea of uh, the, the crystal sea with David and ask him some questions about some things? Like, wh what would that be like? And as you start to lift your mentality, it changes your perspective. See, in verse 3, Jesus give us, gives us uh, promises of three different things. He says he's going to go prepare a place. He says he's going to come back. And he says you're going to be with him. What an amazing thing that Jesus says. That, that he promises these things. And the thing that makes heaven what it is, the thing that makes heaven, heaven is the presence of Jesus. 
That's what makes heaven what it is. It's not streets of gold. That's not what makes heaven what it is. It's not gates that are made out of giant pearls. That's not what makes heaven what it is. It's not uh, you know, necessarily even seeing those friends and family members that have gone before. It's Jesus. That's what makes heaven what it is. That's what gives it the reality. I, I don't know what your perspective of heaven is. Maybe you, you have a, a, a weird view of it the way that I did when I uh, was younger because of cartoons. You know, that maybe you're going to be some sort of strange fat baby wearing a diaper or sitting on a harp playing or sitting on a, not a harp, sitting on a cloud playing a harp. You know, I, I don't know. Like if that's heaven, I don't want to be a fat diaper baby thing. Like I, that's not what something I'm into. I don't really want that. Like if that's heaven, that's weird. I might pass. Uh, that's not heaven. That's not what it is. It's not this weird thing made up by Looney Tunes. It's the true reality and certain hope that we have. You see, when you lose heart, the, the thing that happens is you lose heart because your focus is on temporal things. Some people don't want anything, want anything to do with Jesus, and they don't want anything to do with this church, but they think they want heaven. And I don't really get that. Like, that doesn't compute for me because heaven's all about Jesus and his people. So, like, if you don't like church and you don't like Jesus and you think you want to go to heaven, I don't think you know what heaven really is. Heaven's all about Jesus and his people. And so people that, that think that, it's just this crazy mentality that they slip into. Now, when you lose heart, it's because your focus is off. It's not on eternal things. It's on temporal things. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says it like this. While we do not look uh, at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, when you get distracted by the here and now, it is always to the detriment of the eternal. And it's sure to trouble your heart. When you're all about right here, when you're all about right now, it's going to distract you from eternity and it's going to trouble your heart. Guaranteed, Every single time. Refocus number three, have hope in Jesus. Verses four through six. Look at verse four. Jesus continues on and he says, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. And then Thomas says to him, Lord, I love this. I love what Thomas says here in verse five. He says, Lord, we don't know. What, he basically says, uh, I got no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. Like that's the paraphrase there of, of what's going on there. Uh, he says, I'm not sure we know where you're going and how can we know the way? And Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus takes belief into the deeper waters of specifically trusting in who he is. That, that there's a, a specificity about you've got to trust in Jesus and who he has revealed himself to be. Not who you want Jesus to be. Not who someone else has said Jesus is. Not someone who has the name Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible. That, that's the vitally important thing for us to grasp. That, that when troubling times come, being secure in who Jesus is and his great ability will bring hope to your heart. That you will have hope in your heart when you are in these troubling times. Thomas is willing to say what we're all thinking. Basically, he says, I don't get it. And Jesus replies in verse 6 with I am statement number 6 
of seven. Now, just for your frame, uh, knowledge and, and framework of the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is based around seven miracles that Jesus performs and seven I am statements that Jesus has. That's the structure of the Gospel of John. And here where we find ourselves in chapter 14 is the sixth statement, the sixth I am statement that Jesus makes of seven uh, for us here. And, and he says here in this, in this I am statement, it has three parts to it. All of them are pointing to hope in him. And these three parts are all exclusive claims. That Jesus is not saying he's one of many, but the one and only. That, that's what Jesus is telling us. It's what he's proclaiming to us and saying to us. That, that is, he's also in this, not only is he saying that he's the one and only, but by saying he's the one and only, he's also saying that the other ones are fake and liars. That's what he's saying. This exclusive claim of Jesus, when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, he's also saying every other way, every other so-called truth, every other promise of life, it's all fake and it's all a lie, right? So we need to put everything else outside of Christianity into that category. It is a lie. The Bible calls those doctrines of demons. So I know your Mormon friend might be a nice guy, but he's believing a doctrine of a demon, okay? And we've got to put it in that category. That's really what it is. Just because they're nice people doesn't mean they believe in the same Jesus you believe in. It's not the same Jesus, not even close, not even close to the same Jesus. Now, Jesus replies with this, and essentially what he's saying is saying that he is unique, that, that he didn't say that he would show us a way he says, I am the way. He didn't say, you know what, guys, I know a way, a, a way that might be good for you to think about or maybe try. He says, I'm the way. Jesus does not say uh, that he could teach us a truth. He says he himself is the truth. I am the embodiment of truth. That's what Jesus says. He doesn't offer the secrets to life, but he says that he himself is the life. You see, in this, what Jesus is saying is that he alone exclusively grants access to the Father. That if you want to get to the Father, if you want to know God, if you want to have the hope of eternity in heaven, there's only one way. It's through Jesus. And if it's not through Jesus, there is no way. Romans 5.5 5 says this, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. See, apart from Jesus, there is no hope because he alone holds the substance of hope. Now, this isn't hope like, you know, I hope it doesn't snow later on tonight because I got to drive home, uh, or uh, I hope my team wins this weekend. This isn't that kind of hope. This is a sure and certain reality. This is a, this is a, a hope that is the basis of life. You see, hope that's placed in Jesus will not disappoint because it's, it's certain it's a reality. The, the Mormon Jesus doesn't exist. He's a figment of their imagination. The Jehovah's Witness Jesus doesn't exist. The, the Muslim Jesus doesn't exist. They all believe in a Jesus. They use the name Jesus, but it's not the same Jesus of the Bible. Those guys don't exist. They are not real. And there is no hope in those people. But there is hope in Jesus Christ. Messiah, who came in, in, in human flesh and gave himself for us on a cross. He sacrificed himself to buy you into his family, not on your best day, but on your worst day. What an amazing God. What an amazing Jesus we serve. All right, no, refocus number four. 
have knowledge in Jesus, verses 7 through 11. Verse 7 says this, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Here Jesus links the concepts of his I am statement to knowledge of the Father, right? That's, that, that's kind of how, how things work. You know what comes after six? Seven, yeah. So after verse six, you're like, I'm so glad I came to church tonight. Uh, I learned some math. Um, and it's not common core math. It actually works. So uh, after, after six comes seven. And so the context of what's happening here is we've got to understand verse seven in the context of verse 6. We don't take any verses in a vacuum unto themselves. We don't say, well, we're just going to take this verse by itself. No. Verse 7 flows from verse 6. And what he's doing, Jesus is linking the concept of his I am statement to the knowledge of the Father. That when troubling times come into your life, your knowledge of the character and nature of the Father will bring courage to your heart. Do you want courage to be able to handle the problem, to be able to handle the situation, to be able to handle the difficulty, to be able to navigate the trouble that comes to your heart to disrupt your life? Do you want courage for it? It comes from knowledge of the Father. That's the only way you get it. You get it from, which is why at Calvary, we spend so much time in the scriptures because you need the word of God. You don't need five tips on how to live a better this, that, or the other thing. You need to know God's word. I need to know God's word. We need to dive into the word of God to know the God of the word. And as we know him more, courage fills our hearts and we will not be overcome. We will not let our hearts be troubled because of the courage that, it, that is brought. Now in verse 9, we see uh, God as Lord, as sovereign, as holy, as king. That's an easy thing for us. But Jesus says something interesting. He says, um, he who has seen me has seen the Father. An interesting thought there. That, that the idea of Lord, Sovereign, King, God, those are easy concepts for the, these guys, for this Jewish mind. But the idea of God as dad, that's a weird one. That, that's something they wouldn't presume upon. They, they could understand maybe Jesus saying Father, but, they, but for them to assume that, they wouldn't do that thing. They, they wouldn't step into that kind of relationship. That they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, um, pursue God in that kind of a way. It was a revolutionary thought. In verse 7, notice Jesus says, my father. But now in verse 9, he says, the father. Do you see that? There's a transition taking place where Jesus is saying, my father is your father. That you have the same access to God that I do is what Jesus is saying. He's giving us the same kind of, of access. Now, the word father there, it might be strange for you. It might be hard for you. Even when I say father, you might have some weird things that are conjured up in your mind because you have a, a weird picture of God based upon your father, your earthly father. I know for me, my father left uh, my mom when I was around three years old. Uh, drugs and alcohol ruined his life and he pursued those to the detriment of his, of his marriage and also abandoning his kids, me and my sister, uh, my younger sister. And so he, he abandoned us and, and and it, it wrecked his life so badly that to this day, we're, our relationship is still completely broken. Uh, I've heard he's saved. I've heard that he's sober. I've heard that he's been living clean for a few years. But he still has not been able to bring himself to pursue relationship with me because, because it's wrecked his life so terribly. 
He's never met my kids. He doesn't know his grandkids at all. He kind of Facebook stalks us a a little bit, but that's the depth of of which he knows us. And so in this, it it may be for you a difficulty when you hear father, and that's because we tend to project the failures that we receive onto God instead of the other way around. In this, God in in, in this idea of father, he's not saying that he's a father the way my, my earthly father is. He's saying he's dad, and I get to share his title with him. What a mind-blowing idea. Like, I would understand if God gave me a different title, like knucklehead or chump or something like that. That would make sense to me. But I get to share his title of father? That's mind-blowing. That's crazy. We've got to reverse this idea and say, he's dad, he's father, he's good. And all the failures of our earthly fathers, they point us to the reality of how good and great our, our true dad really is. In this, um, Jesus is saying, you know me, so therefore you know the Father, but they completely missed it. I remember uh, my wife and I were trying to teach our kids this idea, and and one of the things that we would constantly say to them was, um, you know, hey, uh, you are on loan to us from, from God. And this is especially great when you're having to discipline your kids, because basically you get to say, it's his fault. Um, and so that's kind of the, the way that that goes. But, you know, just kind of introducing this idea to our kids. Hey, you belong to the Lord. You belong to God. He's your father and uh, you're on loan to us. And, and so uh, I, when we we're trying to work through this with our kids, when they're little, I remember they would go to the church and they would, they would, they would be wandering around and they would say stuff like, I have two dads. And we're like, no, we're not really that kind of church, <laughs> you know, like. Oh, that's, that's not really right. <laughs> then they would say things like, you're not my real dad. I'm like, whoa, no, not that, not that either. <laughs> like kind of, but, but not really. And, and there's a, a sort of sweetness to the innocence of a child that's trying to figure that stuff out. But, but that's the truth and the reality, that, that, that I'm a shadow of the, the reality, that I represent something to them uh, instead of being something uh, for them. In verses 10, through 11, we see that Jesus says uh, that the things that Jesus says and what he does are in connection with his relationship with the Father. Notice in verse 10, he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak uh, to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Jesus is saying that his words and his works are in direct connection to his relationship with the Father. They're not separate issues. You see, the knowledge of God is the basis of relationship with God. That's the basis of the relationship. The knowledge of God is the fuel to the fire of the relationship. And that's how every relationship works. That every relationship is based around knowledge. I'll use my my marriage, for example, that that for my wife, I can't say, uh, Micah, honey, I I love you. I never call her honey. That's a weird, I don't know why I said that, but... um, I call her love. So love, I love, that sounds weird too. Micah, I love you, but I don't really want to know you. I I mean, just don't don't bother me with your stuff. I love you. I just don't, I don't want to know you. That doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. That love is fueled by the knowledge. The more I know her, the more I I spend time studying her, the more I spend time analyzing her, the more I fall in love with her. 
If you want to feel what love feels, you need to do what love does, not the other way around. You don't wait till you feel, you do, and then let the feelings follow. That's how love works. That's how relationship works. And when you know your God, he gets larger in your eyes and your problems get smaller. And then faith overcomes fear by having courage in the Lord. Fifthly and finally, number, number five, refocus number five, having busyness in the Lord, verses 12 through 14. Verse 12 says this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now, in this, Jesus moves the disciples from his works to their works. See that? That he's, he's taking his works and he's connecting them with their works. When troubling times come, your pursuit of the work of God in serving others will bring joy to your heart. When your heart is threatened to be overcome, serving others will bring joy into your heart. Doing for others, somehow in that, in doing for others, in serving others, God miraculously does for you. Have you experienced that? You know what that's like? That, that you're in the middle of, of serving somebody else and, and you thought you were there to bless them and you got blessed in the process. And you're like, well, how did this? I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that this could take place. And, and the thing is, is that God has designed us that way. I want to ask you a question. When is the last time you did something for somebody who could never repay you back, who could never do something for you? When's the last time you did for something for somebody that way? I think those are the kinds of things that we need to pursue in order to have this kind of joy fill our hearts. That we know what it's like to be used of God in such a way that, that we are able to, uh, to serve others. Uh, about a, a year ago, uh, our church was able to participate in helping uh, a local ministry here in Colorado called Extended Hands of Hope. Uh, they are a ministry specifically designed on rescuing girls from sex trafficking. And, and so uh, they have a house and uh, the house was kind of falling into some disrepair and they needed some help doing some stuff. And uh, we went and we took care of, of build, rebuilding a, a deck, a massive 2,000 square foot deck. Yes, I said that right. 2,000 square foot deck on this, on this house, wrapped around, big wraparound porch. Uh, I think we rebuilt something like five entire staircases, which if you don't know anything about carpentry, that is a lot of work. Uh, we had to pull boards out, replace them, sand the entire thing, restain and finish the entire thing. It took about three days when it was all done for us to do. And, and the crazy thing about this is that uh, myself and all of the other guys who went to go help do this, we will never, ever meet the girls who we served. There's just this separation. They needed to be secured. They, needed, they were actually taken away while we did the work. We're never going to meet them. We're never going to know who they are. They're never going to be able to come up and say, hey, thank you so much for doing that for me. They're not going to be able to because they have no clue who did it, and I don't know who they are. There's no way we're ever going to be able to know. When's the last time you did something for somebody who could never repay you? who could never pay you back. I think it's an important part of us serving others. The idea or the thought, I'm too busy, or I just don't have time, that, that's usually just a, a self-centered excuse. Instead, try replacing that with this phrase. That's just not a priority for me. Or I don't care about that. How does that taste? That sounds a little bit jerky, doesn't it? That's a little bit of a different, different attitude that goes with that. Now, in verse 12, we see that belief in Jesus will always produce actions like Jesus. He says, if you believe in me, the works that I do, you will do also. 
and greater works than these. That belief in Jesus always produces actions like Jesus. Or we could say it this way. What's in your head affects what's in your heart and comes out into your hands. That's the way that it works. You can't have belief in Jesus that doesn't affect what you do. The, again, I could say it a different way. If you want to know what you believe, what you really believe, not what you say you believe, but what you actually believe, look at what you really do. What you really do proves what you actually believe. Now, this is right uh, as well for the negative. Uh, that, that if uh, many times when we struggle with sin, maybe there's a sin that has overcome you. Maybe there's a sin that you're struggling with. Maybe there's a difficulty that you find yourself in. What I found to be true is that it has almost nothing to do with an action and everything to do with a belief. If you'll stop focusing on trying to get your actions right and start focusing on getting your beliefs right, the actions will take care of themselves. You believe wrong, therefore you do wrong. Or you believe right, and therefore you do right. Somehow you've bought into the lie that, that the world, it's the same lie that Satan told Eve, that, that God really doesn't have everything you need. If you want satisfaction, if you want fulfillment, if you want to, to know what it's like to feel joy and to feel peace and to feel like you have power and control and, and, and like you know what's going on, that you're the, the king of your own universe, you're the God of your own universe, then you got to go this way. You can't go God's way. It's the same lie he sells to us. That somehow God doesn't have what you need. Somehow God isn't, he's withholding good from you. Micah and I, uh, we love hotels. Um, there's lots of reasons to love hotels. My wife really loves it. She really loves Disney hotels, even though we haven't gone to one yet because it's like, you got to take out a loan and sell one of your children to get in. Uh, but uh, she loves the idea of a Disney hotel. But there's this, she lo we love hotels. And, and the reason that we love hotels is because you, you wake up in the morning and you get ready and you leave and you know, it's kind of a mess, right? And you know what you come back to? It's clean, it's spotless. They made the bed. They folded some stuff. They folded your PJs, maybe, and put them on your pillow. Um, they, they gave you new towels. It's glorious. You're like, yes, I, this isn't, they turned down the air conditioner because it was hot. Like, this is amazing. This, if I was at my house, this is not how it would be. If I left with a mess, even if I told my children, hey, clean the mess, you know what I come back to? A mess. Sometimes a worse mess. Like, well, what did you do? You know, how, did, how is it possible that you created more of the chaos? Uh, that's just kind of the way that it, that it works sometimes. That, that, that uh, the reality is that there's this, this thing going on with this, this, uh, these, these uh, hotels and this, this thing. So I want to ask you a question in this. this. This question might hurt a little bit. Do you treat the church like a hotel or like your home? Do you, do you come expecting somebody else to do stuff for you? Do you come expecting, well, they'll set that stuff up. They'll pick up after me. I can just leave my trash here. I'll just throw a little tip in the offering as I go, and, and I'll, be, I'll be good to go. Do you treat the church like a hotel that someone else is there to serve you, or do you treat it like a home? If I don't do it, who will? That there's a, a, a thing that flows out of our lives when we truly believe in the Lord. Now, notice at the end of verse 12, Jesus says this, because. He says, because. He says, uh, the works I do, they'll, they'll also do, and greater works than these they will do, because I go to my Father. You see, what they dread the most is the very means by which Jesus does his best. The cross of Christ is how Jesus establishes this reality of relationship with his people and how he advances his church. 
There's no church, there's no people of God, there's no salvation apart from Jesus going to the cross. And that's the thing that they dread the most. They're constantly trying to talk Jesus out of it. No, you're not gonna die, Jesus. Why would you go to Jerusalem when they're trying to kill you, Jesus? Uh, we'll, we'll protect you, Jesus, all that kind of stuff. It's the thing that Jesus knows that he needs to do. It's how he gives his best. And as he sacrifices himself for the benefit of others, he's also calling us to do the same. Right? He's saying the works that I do, you'll do as well as, and also more. He's calling us to the same kind of mentality. Now, the idea of doing greater works than Jesus did, it's not greater in extent. It's not like Jesus is saying, I raised two people from the dead, you've got to do four. I walked on water, you've got to hover over the water. I fed 5,000, you better do 10. Uh, That's not greater in terms of that, okay? It's not greater in terms of extent, it's greater in terms of reach. What Jesus is saying in this is that he's about to get into this in the rest of the chapter about the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is that the Holy Spirit's presence is only in Jesus at that time. And when he goes to the cross, Jesus says, I'll be able to send the helper to you. And so now instead of the Holy Spirit's presence being only in Jesus, in one man, in one place, at one time, the Holy Spirit can be in his entire church across the entire planet. Millions of us all at once. What a cool idea. What an amazing thing that the reach of God goes so much further because of the Spirit of God. Now notice in verse 13, he says this, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Remember earlier when we talked about not taking verses in a vacuum? This is one of the most vacuumized, vacuum sealed, you know, pull it out of the freezer later kind of verses in the Bible where people do all sorts of crazy stuff with this. Notice the contextual flow. Jesus was just talking about serving, wasn't he? That you're going to serve and this serving, if you need something, then you're going to get it. Putting in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer does not obligate God to do it. You know, God's not like up in heaven going, don't say in Jesus' name, don't say in Jesus' name, don't say in Jesus' name. Oh, they said it, now I have to do it, right? That is not what's going on. God's not worried about that in heaven, okay? That the reality is that that Jesus is pointing us to the idea uh, of saying that the context is working for him and for his glory. Yes is not the only valid answer to a prayer. I'm so glad God has said no to some of my prayers. Aren't you? I've asked for some things and I'm mad at God because he didn't say yes. And then I look at it later. I'm like, God, you're so smart. I, I would have messed that up. I'm so glad you said, said no to me. It's, it's, it reminds me of when uh, my, my oldest, uh, she's 15 now, but when she was about 18 months old, maybe two years old, uh, I, I did what any good dad would do discipling her, his kids. I was feeding her steak. Um, and so I, I had her sitting on my lap and, uh, I was feeding her steak and, you know, to this day, she says, dad, make sure that you cook the, the pink meat. She wants it, you know, medium, medium rare. She's like, don't ruin it by overcooking it. So, you know, I had her sitting on my lap and I got a fork and a knife and I'm cutting the steak and I'm feeding her the, the pieces of steak. And, and, uh, so as I feed her the steak, um, she sees what I'm doing and she, like any, you know, 18 month, two year old kid, she wants to do what I'm doing. So she reaches out for the knife. And so like any good dad, I just handed it to her and she was like this and, you know, stabbed herself. Of of course I didn't hand a two-year-old a knife, right? Like that's insane. I held them away from her and she proceeded to 
That's right, lose her mind. She screamed at me. She was so mad. She was so frustrated. Dad, how could you withhold something so good from me? I see you using it. I see how it, it delivers this glorious steak to me. Dad, you're so mean. You're so selfish. Why won't you give me the steak knife? And so I cut her up another piece and stick it in her mouth, and she's quiet for a few seconds until she screams and loses her mind again. And she does this over and over again. Sometimes God says no and it's for your benefit because it's going to hurt you. You think it's good in all your infinite wisdom. You think it's great. You think it's what you need. But God says no. And, and you know what? Now she's 15. I hand her her own steak. I'm like, cut your own food, kid. I'm not doing it. Right? She's old enough to handle the responsibility now because maturity has come into her life to get her to the point where she can handle now the responsibility. Sometimes you need to grow a little bit. And then God will give you that thing. It's not a bad thing necessarily, but today it would kill you. Tomorrow it might be good for you. Sometimes it's just time to grow a little bit because the level of maturity gets us to the point of handling the responsibility. As we wrap up, uh, just one final thought. Those who complain the most are typically those who do the least because their eyes are on their self-comfort and their self-glory. They've let their heart become troubled. So refocus refocus. Refocusing your attention off of your problems is vital to overcoming if your trouble, uh, overcoming your troubled heart instead of letting it overcome you. And if you're focused on being the victim, then you're going to be good for complaining and you're going to be good for excuses, but not much else. Uh, those who are good at excuses are rarely good for anything else. Difficulty and trial come to every one of us, but a troubled life does not automatically mean you've got to have a troubled heart. And Jesus is calling you to control your heart. So don't let your heart be troubled. Instead, refocus your eyes on him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. God, thank you for the privilege of being able to study it together. We pray that you would be blessed and glorified and honored by us and that you would help us to take your word for what it says, that we would not be troubled, but that we would see you exalted and glorified and lifted up and that you would use us for your purposes. God, that your name would be exalted and that we would uh, see the benefits of you working in us and working through us. So God, be glorified uh, together among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.